This episode, I'm joined by David Vincent, who is a professor of social history at the Open University and visiting professor at Keele University. He is the author and editor of 16 books on British and European social history, including Bread, Knowledge and Freedom, a study of 19th century working class autobiography, and The Culture of Secrecy, Britain, 1832 to 1998, alongside various other texts. In this episode, we discuss his latest book, A History of Solitude. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my patrons and paid subscribers for making all of this possible, and if you'd like to support Emetics or become part of the community, please find our links in the description below. Enjoy. Uh, so David Vincent, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics podcast. Um, so we're going to be discussing your book, A History of Solitude, which is, um, as the title suggests, a, a history of solitude and in part loneliness and its effects on society and how it's, how it's sort of changed over the years. Um, but before we, we dive in, if you could just let us know a little bit about you and, and your work and why was you decided to write this book? Well, I'm a long-standing historian of, uh, social, of, of social life in Britain uh, and have been working over the last few years um, on the history of privacy and published a couple of books on that and became interested as part of that, that world in the circumstances uh, which enabled people to enjoy privacy as a personal experience and how they withdrew from society. Uh, and from that last history of privacy, a set of questions arose uh, about how attitudes to solitude have changed over the years, how practices of solitude have changed, um, and, and whether we still are talking about the same experience as the classical writers on the subject are. I'm sure we'll we will touch on those those questions. Um, but uh, I do have a question which is unique to this podcast to begin from, which is the hermetics question. So you can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the uh, the conversation. Who do you pick? And they don't have to be related to uh, this book or solitude. It could just be three that you uh, you know you'd like to meet. Uh, well, the first would be very directly related to the book uh, to the, to the <coughs> solitude enterprise. The uh, it kicks off. Um, with um, an examination of the writings of a Swiss-German doctor in the Enlightenment, Johann Zimmermann, who was the first modern writer to take on solitude and, and, and wrote a long account discussing its, its strengths and weaknesses. And I'd, I'd like to have him back in the room. And he, he had, he was, he was, amongst other things, the, um, the doctor to um, uh, George III in, 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 in Germany and, and had good English, so he would take part in this discussion quite happily. Second writer, he doesn't belong to the canon of great thinkers, uh, but is central to my enterprise. That's John Clare, the Northamptonshire peasant poet of the uh, first half of the 19th century, who wrote eloquently and, and, and powerfully about solitude as experienced by a farm labourer as he walked about his fields um, and uh, engaged with uh, a long poetic tradition of writing about uh, nature in that way. And the third, I think I'd be curious to meet up with again is, is Thomas Merton, uh, who was the last great theologian to um, uh, dwell in spiritual solitude and to engage with the tradition of the, of the Desert Fathers in, in Christian theology, which goes all the way back to the 3rd and 4th century. Uh, and he was a Trappist monk in the post-1945 period. Uh, wrote voluminously 
about spiritual retreat, uh, and Marx, in some respects, a full stop to that tradition, but a very eloquent and interesting one. So I think those three, Zimmerman, Claire, and uh, and Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton would certainly be someone I'd love to meet. It's the Seven Story Mountain is one of my probably one of my favourite texts actually, and especially the the early parts of the text where his sort of scathing criticisms of the Church of England as a as an aesthetic I always find quite humorous. But um, I'm interested as to why do you not see any any anyone after Merton who's making a clear attempt at um, trying to understand solitude? It's become more fragmentary. I, I've um, there is uh, a, a, um, Sarah Maitland in, in, in this country is, is still trying to keep that spir- spiritual uh, tradition going. There are writers uh, on, on on nature still, but I, I don't think there is a, mod- a full modern defence of solitude in a way that was attempted by Merton and by Zimmerman uh, beforehand before him. I, I think the, the, the subject now is is has become more diverse and in some respects more low-key. Okay, we'll touch on those, but just going back to your room with the thinkers, a couple of questions. Do you think there'd be a a general discussion, a topic which would connect the three? And do you think that it would actually be quite difficult considering um, two of them clearly respected solitude, so they might not actually want to be in the room? <laughs> well, it, I mean, it, having them in the room together would be, would be fun, because Zimmerman, who was a Protestant, but is a Swiss Protestant, uh, was vehemently hostile to the um, uh, Desert Fathers and that tradition of Catholicism. He, he believed it was a complete dead end. He thought that taking monastic vows was a one-way journey to um, the destruction of all that was important in society. And whilst he could endorse various forms of secular solitude, uh, he had a full enlightenment contempt for the the, the the monastic tradition. So he and Merton would, would have been at each other's throats and be worth um, watching them argue it out, watch them argue it out between them. What was why did he believe that um that that taking those vows would lead lead to the destruction? Because his view of solitude and is one which I, I, I follow through the book, was that it was beneficial and creative um when it was a journey, a reversible journey, when you could move into solitude and move back. What mattered to him was the um, ease with which you could enjoy the benefits of society, then withdraw to recharge your moral spiritual batteries, and then re-enter society. It was that journey back and forth which for him made for a, a healthy and progressive society. And he was deeply suspicious of forms of solitude, um, including the monastic tradition, which um, for which there seemed no retreat. Once you got in there, you couldn't get out again. And he would also um, line up with that what was then called melancholy, forms of what we now call depression, uh, where you become so withdrawn in yourself that you can't talk about your condition and you can't construct a path back to, to social living. He was enough of an enlightenment man to really value social interaction. Um, but had read, read widely enough to understand that some retreat from that from time to time was necessary. But when that retreat became permanent, uh, then it was a real threat to everything that he thought modern society should stand for. Uh, so he sort of saw Catholicism as having, a, or trying to construct a monopoly on solitude. It's not so much a monopoly, it, 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 
the absoluteness of the retreat that um, in, 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 in the case of, um, or in, in, in any uh, form of, of spiritual withdrawal, you went inside the walls of a monastery and you never came out. Uh, and that for him was, was, was destructive of, of all that mattered in, in what he regarded as, as a progressive um, time of civilization. Do you think then that that progressive alteration of our understanding of solitude, moving from Desert Fathers and the Trappist monks who are sort of understood as these, um, you know, as you say, an absolute form of solitude, do you think that that Mm -hmm. progressive move towards um, a more diverse form of solitude where you move back and forth is one of the alterations wherein our understanding of what solitude is has sort of fundamentally changed and we can't really grasp what it is? Yes, I do, and I think it's become much easier. I mean, for Zimmerland, it was only really feasible for educated men. He didn't think the working class would ever have the time to do that. He didn't think women could stand the the, 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 the mental stress of, of, of solitude. And what my book traces is the great, is, is, is a gradual broadening out of opportunities for solitude, of experience for solitude, uh, down the 19th and 20th centuries. So that more and more of the of, of society has the means of at least temporarily withdrawing from company when it's good for them to do so, um, and uh, it becomes a less stressed uh, and, and more everyday experience uh, for, for society more broadly. Do you do you personally undertake solitudes quite often? Well, I I mean, I'm a writer of books. Uh, history books in my case, but anybody who engages in that kind of activity, which has been my working life, uh, knows what solitude is. And, and, and I'm surprised in some ways that historians haven't taken on this topic uh, before now. But uh, I r- am able to retreat to my study and then go back into my household where my wife is with me and where there's always been company. Uh, I think I've had a an enjoyable and working life because of those transitions. Um, and I think university life, where I've earned my living, uh, is in that respect a, a wonderful mix of retreat and then engagement with students in the life of an academic department. Uh, and in my case, um, 15, 20 years, uh, also engaged in university management. So it's the movement between my study and the society of of, of, of a university, uh, which has made my trade a, a very satisfactory one for me, were it only sitting in my study and writing, then I don't think I could have borne it. Mm-hmm. And do you think then that that move towards that ability to flip between, so you're moving from the absolute, do you think that that absolute form of solitude is why, you know, in the early, early on in the book, you, you outline the fact that historically it's been sort of extremely frowned upon. It's not really understood as solitude as more of a form of antisocial behaviour um, and people were actually just removing themselves from society. Do you think that this move, that, that move towards being able to dip in and out has made it a bit more acceptable or have we... Yeah, yes, I, 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 I think it has. It's, it's, it's made it more, more everyday. I mean, my book was started and conceived long before the present drama was upon us, uh, but now we are in the midst of this uh, isolation, 
uh, I think people have coped with it uh, remarkably well because there are now such a wide range of activities and practices for, for, for spending time by yourself. Um, it, it seemed less of a disjuncture than it would have been 200 years ago. Do you think then, um, do you think that, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the sort of, uh, the you know, the recent corona sort of solitude that it's almost, you yeah. know, mandatory solitude. And it does bring into question the idea, at least for me when I was writing these questions, with regards to whether or not solitude as an act is primarily mental or physical. Because with the coronavirus, it's sort of, it's had to be primarily mental as people seem to feel a bit locked in. Do you think yeah. that, do you think that over time that it's changed and... I, th I think it's, it's well, I think two answers to that. The first is that it's always been a state of mind. If you go back to Zimmer and, and early writers, what interested them was not so much physically being by yourself, but why you were by yourself. That always was, was a central question. And I think in, in, in many respects that, that, that remains the case. Um, what my book traces is not only physical solitude, that's being out of someone else's company, but also the growth of what I call network solitude, uh, when you're by yourself but in contact with someone else through the communications networks of the time, whether it's the books or correspondence or telephone or iPhone. Uh, an abstracted solitude, which is when um, you are actually in physical company but have withdrawn your mind and your thoughts and your person from the company uh, around you, that actually was advocated by Defoe well back into the 18th century, uh, but we can see its triumph now with the iPhone, which allows you to concentrate uh, on an abstract person or event whilst in the middle of company, and I think is the final victory of abstracted solitude. So with, with network solitude, the idea that you're in communication with someone, but you're still in solitude, do you think that that almost seems to be now as you say with the iPhone, sort of perpetual. There's no point when we're not truly alone unless, of course, we were to leave yeah. these communication devices yeah. at home. Do you think that this is almost like a a symptom of the Enlightenment that's come through and really pushed itself to, to its absolute extreme of sociability? Yes, I do. Uh, and uh, I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fairly obvious point. Uh, but for most of us, uh, the capacity to uh, communicate in this way uh, has enabled us to get through uh, this lockdown with as little grief uh, as, as we've experienced. I mean, it is worth noting that um, there's, there's kind of a social survey work going on at the moment, and it's all saying that people's state of mind has not collapsed over the period, uh, and, and that it's been remarkably stable, and indeed uh, conventional measures of happiness and Anxiety are improving uh, at, at the moment, um, but we've gone into this crisis bearing so many facilities for abstracted and networked communication uh, has been quite critical, I think. So really the, the, the ability for almost like technological network solitude has sort of saved us from a, uh, a potential societal psychosis. Yeah, yeah, I think it's... And, and so it would, as we know, um, all governments, including our own government, when this crisis loomed into view, were appalled at the prospects of imposing this kind of isolation on people. 
uh, and and delayed fatally too long before they brought it in, and were astonished when they did so, how readily people accepted these quite unprecedented restrictions. And for that acceptance, you must find an explanation in the facilities that already existed for living by yourself. I, I have an account later in the book um, about the rapid growth of single-person households since 1945. Um, about a third of Households in Britain are, are, are now one-person households. Uh, it's more in in, in Sweden. Uh, some cities have got single-person household rates of, of 15, 60 percent. Um, that didn't happen before 1945. It's a new and critically important, I think, demographic change, and it's only been possible because people have been able to choose how to live in a way they couldn't before, and they have chosen to live by themselves. And why they've done that and what facilities they've made that possible, um, I think is really important for understanding how we've got through this this this, this um, more extreme crisis. So that that increase in single person households, do you believe that's primarily economic or more of a um, characteristic thing? People want to do that for personal. I th- I think it's I, I think the desire to spend time and live by yourself is probably a very long standing. Uh, what's changed are the material circumstances which make that possible. Uh, it's pensions for, um, for, for older people so they don't have to go and live back with their children. Uh, it's, it's incomes for women so they don't have to keep um, in, in the same household as unsatisfactory male uh, partners. It's the young being able to afford their own flats. Uh, and then it's um, obviously communications technology which we've just been talking about and, 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 and how they've improved its growth in the consumer market, um, facilitating meals you can, you, you, you can take, a, you, you can eat at home and, and, and other consumer goods which are designed for one person only. It, it's a bundle of material consumer technological changes which have permitted, I think, long-held ambitions to be realised. So, so, so far, you it seems that the, your perhaps not argument, but you you seem to be saying that the symptoms of the Enlightenment that have come through in relation to solitude move away from absolutism towards a more diverse and nuanced form where you can enter back into sociability. This all seems to be positive, but do you see any negative effects of this that have led from the Enlightenment? In relation to solitude, that is? It's difficult to, to just bundle it up as positive versus negative. I, I I think that um, the um, fear that um, being by yourself can be destructive, which comes out of the environment, is still with us. Um, I in my book, which was written before this crisis came upon us, so it was published after the lockdown. Uh, in the book, I, I get really quite annoyed by the widespread um, use of the term an epidemic of loneliness that has allegedly overwhelmed British and modern society. I think it's a misuse of the medical term epidemic. And it, I mean, it was a misuse then, and, it, and to continue using it as people are is just absurd um, when we're faced with a real, uh, a real medical epidemic. Um, but the willingness of people to um, engage 
with an inflated threat of of, of, of loneliness does, I think, go back to the um, the Enlightenment, the notion that a dysfunctional society is one in which um, people get left out of significant social relationships and suffer thereby, and that therefore loneliness is an index of the failure of the Enlightenment project that the individual pursuit of of, of material well-being has destroyed their capacity properly to engage with other people, and that that you can trace all the way back, uh, and it's still flourishing and and it's very easy to get an op-ed in the newspaper saying loneliness is once more multiplying. <clears throat> there, there's a real market for that kind of drama, and it is by and large misleading. So, could we understand loneliness then as sort of um the the idea that socially we should be doing other things and we shouldn't being shouldn't really enjoy being on our own that we should primarily be sociable. Well, that that's 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 the fear of loneliness. Is that mm-hmm. loneliness itself? Um, I, I came to the conclusion is best seen as failed solitude. That solitude itself was um, now very widespread ambition. Um, and, and, and it could be a very creative one, but it could go wrong. Um, it could be a condition which you've been thrust into against your will. It could be a condition which you have um, an inability to, to escape from um, when you wish to. Um, so if you see it in those terms as, as failed solitude, <coughs> then it can be obviously a real and destructive experience. Um, the most obvious and the most long-standing and the, and, and the most evidenced form of loneliness is bereavement. If you've had a strong intimate relationship and it's broken by death or by de- desertion, then loneliness is a likely outcome and a very harmful one, both, both um, mentally and physically. So we could understand a sort of su- unsuccessful or successful loneliness, not to try put them on too much of a binary scale but and a successful sorry a successful form of solitude be one in which it's consciously undertaken whereas an unsuccessful one is something that's sort of thrust upon you and spontaneous if you think of it in terms of manage of, of, of the capacity to manage um your social relations and your withdrawal from them solitude is where you've got that management loneliness uh, is where that management is broken down for one reason uh, or, or another. So sort of a strange, uncontrollable solitude. You yeah, I mean, it, well, it, it, it can take different forms. It, it, it can be an, a, a, a misfortune of, of, of bereavement. Uh, it can be some other form of mental illness which has caused you to withdraw. It is interesting that in our current crisis, when um, one of it, it is clear that the real some of the real victims of the lockdown are those who are already in trouble with their social relations, who already for one reason or another were isolated. And when that isolation is compounded by the lockdown, then then there's real grief. So what, what do you think are more effective ways to, to think about loneliness then and what it is to be alone? Because it, obviously that's sort of always seen, that's primarily seen as sort of... Um, a negative thing if someone's always on their own or someone's lonely. Do you think there's other ways we can think about this which are would which historically seem a bit more um, expressive? Sorry, can you, you run that question again? I um, quite... 
So the way in which we think about loneliness seems to yeah. come from the Enlightenment's idea that being alone is, isn't necessarily a great thing because they have this push of sociability. Do you think there's other ways that we can uh, think about loneliness which would be a bit more effective in our understanding of it? Yeah, I think one, one um, dimension of social relations is time. But um, you can define loneliness as a form of solitude that goes on for longer than you would wish it to be. And one of the reasons why you can generate such enormous statistics for loneliness of the 50, 60, 70% of the population is that all of us now have many more changes in the basic circumstances of our lives um, than once was the case. Uh, we, we, we go to different educational institutions, uh, we have different more, more jobs, we have more relationships, we move home more frequently. And those changes themselves are, are forms of risk in, in, in terms of social relations and can lead, lead at times to moments of, of, of loneliness when your calculations don't work out. And, and very often people will, let us say, um, move out of one intimate relationship uh, on the expectation that this uh, will cause uh, a period of loneliness, but in the hope that that won't last too long and they can find somebody else. It doesn't always happen. So the risks don't always work out. And over anybody's lifetime now, if you ask the question, have you ever been lonely? The answer is likely to be yes, but not significantly. It's just a form of life's ups and downs. And we are in danger of confusing the kind of loneliness that comes from those break points, those transition points, which are temporary and calculated and, and, and voluntarily entered into, with the more profound forms of loneliness, uh, which are very often imposed upon you uh, and, and, and for which there is no escape. So intermittent loneliness is, is relatively trivial uh, and very widespread over, over a lifetime. Um, damaging loneliness is probably maybe 5% of the population and is much more acute and, and does require us to uh, address it and to reduce it as far as we can. So, uh, yeah, just following on from that, it's interesting that you mentioned time. Do you think then that because of the... Uh... I can't remember what they called it, but ever since sort of Trump has been elected, the pace of the 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 pace of the flow of knowledge has been so seems to have been so increased that we're sort of bombarded now with uh, updates, and it seems everything's moving faster than it ever did. Do you think that also makes these intermittent forms of loneliness seem ever even longer than they once were because everything's so uh, so seemingly so much quicker now? I, it may be the case. I, I, I certainly think that one of the findings of, of most current research is that the young are more exposed to loneliness than the old are. And I think they're more exposed to this information overload, whereas the old or the older do have a sense of having seen it before and um, that uh, these kinds of, of, of sudden um, dramas will pass. Uh, and if the young are more likely to think that the present will multiply itself in, into the future uh, and, and, and to be scolded by that, uh, that, that that feeling. Do you think then that solitude, or sorry, um, loneliness, do you think it changes when you're sort of over-socialised then? It can actually become worse in a way. Yeah. Yes, I think it can. Um, the 
it, it used to be thought that um, loneliness was a particular characteristic of of the elderly, as, they, as uh, particularly given the increase in life expectation and, and, and the more decades you're likely to live after, after after family raising. But I think more recent research has, has reversed that, and, and and I think that the the real victims are actually much younger. Moving on, one one thing that's really um, interesting in your book that I just hadn't really thought about is the uh, is walking as a as an actual independent mm-hmm. undertaking is something that you would just do as a form of loneliness is is perhaps I mean I live in Norfolk so if any if it's going to sort of happen anywhere it would it would happen happen here but it seems to have sort of faded away and I sort of put this down in my questions here as the automobile overtook this idea of personal freedom um personal liberation in movement the automobile overtook this and you could sort of go everywhere and that's how they were advertised for a long time and do where where can we see the the beginnings where walking stopped being this sort of solitude pastime? Comparatively late. I mean, I, I, although we've got obviously steam engines, steam trains in the, in the, in the nineteenth century, the nineteenth century still is very largely a walking society for most people. Um, cars are are as a, as a mass possession. Are relatively recent. I mean, the 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 there was the upper classes before the social war, middle classes between the, the wars, and only become the standard possession of of most families um, in the 1960s and 1970s. And until then, um, getting about to see people to go to work um, still very often happened uh, on foot. Clearly, in our own times, that kind of business walking, walking to the shops, walking to um, entertainment, walking to work, has declined. But walking as an everyday recreation, so I think, is much more widespread than we than we think. In a way, my book started when I was working on privacy with my own puzzling about the importance of walking and why nobody's ever written about it. Um, and uh, I did as much as I could in the book to restore walking to the centre of the history of recreation. It's hard to do because it's such an inconsequential, unorganised, undocumented activity. It's just strolling out of your door uh, whenever you feel like it uh, in order to escape company, whether it's into the fields um, or or parks or just up and down the street. And I also connect that with dog walking, um, which... uh, is enormously widespread activity and probably is a way in which the largest number of people do enjoy their own company. Um, it, it, it obviously fulfills my prescription that it should be something which you do and then return from. You take your dog out, dog out of the house and come back with it. Uh, but those t- uh, 20 minutes is for many people in, in this society uh, the point at which they're alone with their own thoughts and they value the activity for that is is that why you you believe it's so important it's because it is this within within the over socialization and the the barrage of uh, information it is this one of the few remaining it, times where a lot of people are going to be alone with their thoughts yeah, that's right I, I do and i mean I, and even in the solitude as it happens 
my household uh, 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 cats, not dogs. I, I, I found myself wondering whether we ought to get a dog at this at this point because I, I, I think it would um, just give a bit of purpose to what can be shapeless and formless days in 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 in, in this lockdown. It, but the whole idea of just taking a walk, uh, <laughs> I think, is is even more important than it's been, and it's always been very important. Do you think that either will, in a strange way, actually? We'll see a big increase in um, social activities, uh, solid activities of solitude outside the house after the uh, the final sort of lockdown finally goes away. We might actually see an increase in that. Yeah, I think we will. I mean, there's walking. There's there's also, of course, uh, cycling. I mean, as we all know, there's been an enormous demand for buying bicycles. I mean, if you if you if you if you, if you make bicycles or sell them at the moment, you've had a good time this last uh, three or four months. Some of those will get put back in the shed and never used again, but many won't. Um, so I, I think that, that, that walking will have uh, an increased salience, so more people will will talk about it, as will many other private um, activities. I, I came across the other um, George Orwell's great essay in, in, in the Man Unicorn in 1941 about what made British culture British. And he dwells at length on the everyday quiet activities, um, jigsaw puzzles, crossword puzzles, hobbies of one sort or another, making things, uh, sewing, uh, drawing, which he thought were intrinsic to British culture. And if you look at the list of activities that he was talking about, they're all still here and have actually become more important in, in, in this lockdown. And I think that you can argue that we'll come out of this experience with a changed society. Um, but you can argue the reverse case, that we'll come out of this doing more of the things we always used to do by ourselves, that the that, that so-called hobbies, so-called do-it-yourself, do um, walking, cycling, which all was talking about, which I talked about for even earlier periods, um, have, have had a renaissance in, in this um, in this lockdown, and, and for a while at least, will probably be more important um, than, than than they've been. So it's, it's interesting that you um, mentioned uh, Orwell's essay. I was recently um, reading um, Thomas Carlyle, who Orwell absolutely loathed, but Carlyle was one of the first people to ever have a soundproof room. So perhaps Orwell and Carlyle could have found a a point of uh, where <laughs> that, they, that, they got on yeah, just in the silence. Yep. That's true. <laughs> in Carlyle's case, it never worked. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hilarious account of an attempt to build a, a silent box in, in, in the middle of London uh, and, and, uh, and its failure. Did it fail just because Carlyle was so loud, or was it actually to do with the infrastructure? Uh, it, 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 just, just the uh, um, domestic architecture of the period wouldn't, uh, <laughs> wouldn't, 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 let, it, uh, wouldn't let it happen. So it seems to make it all that more humorous. But it doesn't... Yeah, it... My, my next book will be on... Uh, I, I might write a book about this isolation event itself, but if I write a longer-term history, it's going to be on the history of silence uh, and the search for it and the difficulty of finding it in the modern era. Well, this is this is one of the other big questions. Do you, I mean, it might seem like a very simple one, but do you think that um, solitude and silence are inherently inter- in, interlocked, or do you think that you can actually be... You can be in solitude within noise. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's, 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 
an interesting question. Um, and I, I go back to what I said at the beginning of this um, piece um, about abstracted solitude mm-hmm. in societies before the interwar period most people lived in relatively overcrowded conditions and developed skills in those conditions for withdrawing from the noise of company in order to read a book um, or so or, or, or something else. I think it's a skill long practiced but rarely recognized and I think it's become more important in, in, in our own time as, 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 as the sources of noise uh, have become um, more varied. So this notion of abstracted solitude um, does matter. And I think it is a skill which we have built up over the years and still have. Uh, so you think that might be a skill which actually we begin to to hone even more in the coming, yeah, the coming yeah, years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's helped, of course, by uh, domestic architecture. I, I actually live in a, an extremely old house, at one end of a very old house. It's a 15th century timber frame house, and the internal noise insulation is terrible. I mean, you can hear everybody in every room. Um, but we built an extension to it, which I am presently speaking to you from, with proper insulated noise-insulated walls, and the difference is absolutely transformative. Um, and the room I'm in now is, is modernity. The rest of the house is all of history. Um, but where where, where um, it was just, it's just impossible. Uh, to insulate the noise of one activity from another, the, the, the activity in one room from the activities in another room. Uh, so there, there's a history which I, I still haven't got my head around and needs writing up, really, just on building regulations, building standards, building materials, um, which enabled the modern circumstance, which is a house is designed to be a series of, of, of Carlylean soundproof <laughs> boxes which actually work. So quite ironically, the, the silence of modernity is is taken for granted. It's taken and become more possible. I, I, I've also talked a bit about um, um, soundproof, ear, soundproof earphones, um, which you know, for 300 quid now you can clamp those on your head uh, and, and, and they electronically kill noise. Uh, and I mean, Carlyle would have loved that if he could just have plugged a pair of Bose earphones on his head. Uh, uh, that that would have been his total. I think, and carried on writing. I mean, that that would have been Carlyle in heaven. <laughs> um, is there um, anything you'd you'd like to add about the book, and um, and whereabouts can we we uh, purchase it? Uh, well, it's published by Policy Press. Um, uh, at the, uh, it, it is uh, a, a scholarly book with a, I mean, about 100 pages of footnotes. Uh, and it is uh, um, at the beginning, I hope, of, of other work in this, in this area. But Policy Press, £25, all good bookshops. Okay, seems like a good place to finish up. And thanks very much. Yep.